Welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. This week, I'm speaking to Claire Dunn. Claire is, of course, the star of the groundbreaking family crime drama, Ken. She plays Amanda, the head of the Kinsler family, and the Series 2 finale, which aired on Sunday evening on RT1, was watched by nearly 600,000 people. Claire is a two-time IFTA winner, picking up gongs for both acting and writing. Congratulations, first and foremost, on season two of Ken. I was just checking the numbers there before we started recording. You're nearly tipping the 600,000 viewers now for the finale, which is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Is that like live viewers? Like, that's incredible. I think it's live and console, you know, on catch up as well. Yeah. That's incredible for our little country. Wow. Well, in I tell you, in a world where linear television is really struggling to, yeah. you know, to keep keep audiences, that is some ability to draw a crowd. Yeah. Has it changed your life, Ken? And um, yeah, it's just gone from uh, me living quite anonymously to um, when I'm out in the shops, when I'm out and about, it's like, oh, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. Like chatting to me about the show and then people asking for selfies and stuff like that. And even when it's like 7am in an airport, as I discovered the other day, it'll still be, Agawang is a selfie. Will you? I, know, I won't put it online. <laughs> it's just because my girlfriend loves it or it's just because me, you know. Um, and actually, I find it really nice because it's, um, it's never too much. Like, And these days, it's like, um, I read an amazing fact the other day that like, one in either 15 or 20, I'm not sure, one in 15 people that speak English are now famous. So fame isn't what it used to be, as in like, it's like, it's yeah, you're famous, but like there's millions of you. <laughs> so it doesn't feel that overwhelming. In fact, you're kind of like, oh, deadly, I got a got a request for a selfie there. Um, uh, So it's lovely. And actually, because the response is so positive about Ken, uh, it's great. And for me personally, I, I was only saying to somebody last night, um, I was out with my auntie at the Abbey and I was saying to her like, but I get anything from a teenage girl down at the beach there when I was swimming the other day to uh, a young lad in his 20s in the airport to a man in his 50s, a woman in her 60s. Like it just cuts across all ages and sex and everything like it, just, which I find interesting. You know, you would think it would only be one sort of person that might be into Amanda as a character in Kane and then another person that'd be into a different kind of character but it's actually like everybody's into all the characters like it's very equal across the board which I think is great Will there be a season three? All right, I just want to say for the record the papers keep quoting me as saying there's a season three and my answer every time they ask me is I don't know you'll know before me so that's my answer. I don't know if there's a season three. And we really, we only ever get, when we get green lit, then we know it's definite. But we haven't been, we haven't had any phone calls yet. So um, when we know, you know, that's usually what happens. Like once we get a phone call, it's in the papers. Like so. <laughs> and so that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. You'd have to think, though, I mean, it's such an extraordinary success, critical success, yeah. uh, com- you know, commercially. It's surely the it can't stop now. Uh, you'd hope so. Like, I really, I really hope that's the case. But um, genuinely, in this game, you just never know. Like, there's so many streamers and there's different strands of money that come into Kin. So, like, I can't speak for the financiers. Like, none of us can. So, that's that's why we don't know. We don't know until it's defo. 
But I'd love, I'd love to get a third series. If nothing else, just even one more, I think it deserves a trilogy. So fingers crossed. Okay, I actually have loads more questions about Ken, but we'll go back to those uh, in a while because I want to find, just talk a little bit about you. Um, And maybe just, we'll throw in one random question at this point. Uh, It might take us somewhere. So uh, give us a number between one and 20. 14. What can't you live without? Oatly barista milk. <laughs> Literally. I go mental when I can't access a brand of oat milk that makes my coffee taste amazing. Um, I can't live without that. And I can't, like a second thing I can't live without is um, now at this point in my life is um, probably jumping in the sea. I love it. And I'm not just one of those sea swimming Egypts. I always jumped in the sea since I was a kid. I'm not like one of the people that got into it in a fashion. But I um, I just, I would do anything to jump in the sea. Like, I just love it. And I'm not a big, strong swimmer. I don't do long swims. I just love jumping in. Do you do it, do you do it through the winter? Like, are you the all year round? Oh, yeah. I did this year, actually. Um, I wanted to see if I could do it even just once a week or once every every couple of weeks and um I'm proud to say I did but I was very careful because you you can get hypothermia <laughs> like you can't go in for long basically I just did the um you know even the what is it your man the Wim Hof thing even if you can get in and do 90 seconds I just came to 90 and then get out and that'd be enough like even if I could do that it was amazing for my body and my mental health so are you vegan? You said oat milk for your coffee. No, just fussy. <laughs> I am not vegan. I tried veganism for a year. Um, it just didn't suit certain uh, things for me, just with my body. I'm a very sensitive person. I wouldn't say I eat loads of meat, um, but I think I just need a, a little bit uh, sometimes. Um, I'm not like mad into eggs though or milk, but I'd say I'd miss, um, I'd probably miss Greek yogurt if I couldn't have that anymore. Um, but I wouldn't say I'm a massive meat eater. I'd just say I I learned through default and through basically getting sick that I was like, oh, I do need some things that are just from food source and not from, you know, uh, vitamins or minerals. Um, and then eventually I did loads of research into it. And really the re- a lot of people are turning vegan for environmental reasons. And actually, when you look into it, it's more about getting locally sourced food, being more um, careful with the farming methods, the amount of, you know, cows we have or whatever, the amount of animals that we are, uh, you know, using for meat. Um, So it's more about uh, amounts and about uh, also how much food travels, how much water and uh, CO2 you're using to make soya milk or oat milk or almond milk as well. So like there's way more factors and actually um, a good podcast for people to look into, even though it's kind of finished now, is uh, Mothers of Invention that Mary Robinson did with the comedian. Um, oh, I've lost her name now, Maeve Higgins. Um, they met loads of uh, actually great women in the world, all over the world. And they would they were experts in their field and changing the actual world um, with methods and and um, new solutions to all this kind of stuff. And once I listened to that series of podcasts, I was like, oh, it's not as simple as um, I'm doing veganism because of environmental. It's not as simple as that. 
I think each person has to find their own path of what's right for the country they live in, the community they live in and where they are. And so, yeah, I probably I probably do not need to look into my addiction to only breeze to milk. But look. <laughs> OK, talk to me about your your family background. You had five sisters. Was it just girls in the family? Yeah, I have five sisters um, and that's it. No, no brothers. I'd say I've inherited some brothers over the last few years, but uh, no, no brothers. Massive family. My mom and dad are part of very big families as well. So I have a huge extended family. So it's it's so big that you can't actually maintain a close relationship with every single auntie, uncle and cousin. But I do try because I love my family and the sessions we have are amazing. So the acting bug then, are you the only one? Like, where did that come out of? That kind of came out of nowhere, uh, really, because there wasn't anyone doing anything to do with theatre in my family. And it was more my mom was just so insightful as a mom because she was, you know, watching me get hit that age of 11 or 12. And um, I wasn't doing any of the extracurricular activities in school much like I wasn't into them. I didn't mind like I had a great teacher actually in fifth and sixth class who was brilliant. And he used to teach us songs like in in school. I used to love that. and then, but my mom was like, I do not want to play basketball. I know you're good at that. And I'd be like, oh, you know, and I was just like not into it. And then I did French classes actually weirdly in uh, primary school. So I loved language, but I didn't know what that meant. And then my mom just asked me one day when I was 12, like, but what do you actually like doing? And I was like, I love making me friends laugh. And um, and I tell them stories and I just do impressions of things and like fake falling over and all. And me and my old pal, Naomi, used to just have each other in bits laughing. And nobody could deal with us. Like, we were just idiots together. We were like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And my mum just kind of went, maybe I should just send you to an old drama club. And I was like, what's that? Like, I didn't even know what it was. And so at first, I just went to one of those ones where they do um, the exams, where you do monologues and all that kind of thing, and poems and stuff like that. It was very structured. Um, And that was sort of where I was like, oh, yeah, there's something in this because I definitely, I can tune into what I'm talking about and I can play certain things. But it, it, I remember then we did a show as well at Christmas. I'm sure what happened on stage was the beginning of the, of, like me and my, my mom and dad always said, this was the moment they went, oh, Jesus Christ, she really wants, she's going to be good at this, but also she's a bit mad, was we were doing a Christmas show. I think it was Aladdin and it involved loads of the fairy tales in various forms because it was like, I don't know, it was a weird put together show. And I still remember having this moment on stage with the main character, Aladdin, and I was playing this kind of fun Red Riding Hood. And it was directed to be fairly fun, let's say. But then I got on stage and I just had this moment, this instinct with the audience for like comic timing. And I suddenly, I just did it all the way I wanted to do it (laughs) in the moment on stage. I remember my mum and dad gone because I would have been rehearsing. They were like, She's after uh, totally changing everything. And I was being real cheeky and real bold. And I was like flirting with Aladdin and doing all this crazy stuff. And the audience were laughing. And I remember feeling the audience laugh. And I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Like, I definitely knew then. And then um, and then time went on and my mom realized that the whole structured monologue thing in that place wasn't going to be good. So then I ended up going to Maeve Widgers in Church Town. God rest her. She's, she's left us now. But... 
she was great because we did, I did singing class for an hour and then we do learning about drama, learning about themes, reading some stuff. She taught us a lot about the American writers, a lot about great Irish writers. I remember doing J.M. Singh like when I was 14, I was doing like one of the monologues playing an old woman, like, you know, <laughs> mad stuff. Um, but what we more importantly did at the end was we do improvisations. And I loved all that because then, yeah, it was all in the moment and it was all about the play. Um, so there was a huge amount that she was doing for us just in two and a half, three hours every Thursday. That was teaching us loads of different skills. Um, and one of the main things she used to be like was like 95% of your job is being on time. And she always said that being on time and the rest of it is just working hard. And I really never forgot that. Um, I would say I'm a bit flaky with being on time sometimes now. <laughs> I'd say I'm terrible at it now because I'm terrible at judging traffic or certain things like that. But I'm kind of that person that will like skid in sideways just at the minute it starts. You know, I'll still get there. Um, so I'd say that was all when I kind of started getting into acting. But I, w uh, but I, I definitely didn't think I could be an actor in as an actual career until... Um, later like I thought it was like a nice fun thing and I thought I might end up teaching drama but then it took another while for it to be like oh I'm actually going to do it as a job so thankfully my mom just had a really good instinct when I was younger and just kind of went well there's something you can do with that I'm sure <laughs> you're messing in school basically <laughs> did you ever think stand-up was <sighs> I kind of wish I was braver and did it more when I was when I was just out of drama school I should have done it I I don't know if I could do stand-up. I think what happened with me was I ended up writing something for a fringe theatre where what I cleverly did was I created a character like an alter ego, played her, and then had a whole 20-minute section what I called improv, where I just interacted with the audience. But it was still structured. I had things to hook onto for safety. Um, but because when I was in a character, I felt safer and that I could allow myself to try and be funny and have the crack and improvise with the audience I'd say that's the closest I've ever gotten to stand-up comedy but even the material in that first show that I wrote it was called Living with Missy Missy being the alter ego and I'd say that's where I discovered my my way of doing comedy still don't know if I could do stand-up I'm, I'm kind of friends with Deirdre O'Kane and she's kind of been elbowing me going like come on what are you going to do and I'm like no I know I know I need to get out of this crying over Coffin's business Uh <laughs> So, look, I'll just try and get some comedy roles the next while, put it that way. Uh, yeah, talk about writing then, because uh, obviously you, you studied in Cardiff, but was the writing always going to be there? Was that always part of it for you or, or was it the main thing for you at any time? Was it me or was it just everyone that wrote wanky poetry when they were a teenager? Because I definitely did that. <laughs> did that for a while uh I also um again my mom was a fantastic influence on me and she always wrote diaries in her life and um, she wrote every day but she used to say to me when I was struggling with anything she told me to write it out and then either burn it or throw it in the bin or something you know when you're like going through something especially as a teenager but you kind of don't want to talk to people and um actually for a while and it still is actually uh writing 
just writing on blank paper that I then throw in the bin, God help if anyone ever read it, you know what I mean? Like burn it, whatever, but anything to sort of streamline your thoughts and just get it out of your system. It can help you process stuff. So actually a first writing was just for me. And then I used to write, um, uh, I used to, my first form of writing was actually just hearing songs in my head. So I'm not really a musician, but I'm a bit like my granny, my mom's mom, uh, my mom's mom, um, Carmel, she used to play guitar and she, on, honest to God, she could play the accordion and she could not read music, but she had a fantastic ear. And um, I think I might have inherited that from her. Uh, and then my other granny was a great singer. Um, and then I think basically my first form of writing was hearing songs in my head or hearing poems and rhymes and I would write them down. And then eventually I did learn a bit of guitar, just enough so I could at least find some chord progressions and stuff like that. Uh, I didn't have, I definitely am one of the millennials with just a basic level of ADHD. I just didn't have the tenacity to stick with piano lessons or anything. I was just too busy off smoking and standing around lanes, talking to lads and being a dope. Um, so I was just a bit like crap of folks and all stuff. But then when I did focus on... Uh, writing things like that like I, I'd be surprised at what it come up with you know uh, quite quickly once I got a tune um, and then my uncle John Dunn um, was John and then Joe they sort of helped me understand even just the simplest thing of structure in a song uh, so my uncle's John and jo Joe's an artist um, a fabulous artist he actually did the, the president's um, portraits over the years believe it or not I think he did the two Marys anyway and um John Dunn would have been part of the Passion Machine uh, with Paul Mercier. So that's my tenuous connection to theatre was actually through a musician. John was great at helping me understand just like actually giving yourself a bit of structure in a song to hang on to helps you write a better song. So I used to kind of dwindle a lot and not know what what a verse, a bridge or a chorus was. And I, I still probably don't know, but I definitely know I, I'd hear a tune, I'd be in my head, I'd write it, then I'd hear another thing and then I got, you know, and it would take me a while, but I'd put it on paper and eventually I'd go like a detective. Oh, wait, that's a verse. <laughs> you know what I mean? And kind of discover it as it happens. Um, and that was my original starting in, in writing. So do you have a whole like drawer full of songs that we've never heard? That you've I written? have a few songs yeah, that, I, that I've never released, you know, Um I've definitely, I remember messaging actually somebody like Lisa Lamb and going, come here, like, I've got a few L songs lying around, like, would you ever be interested in it? But she was just too, she was gone. She was on tour or something. And then I was like, like, they're not, my, like some songs I end up writing and I know they're actually not for me to sing. It's weird. Like I go, I write them and I go, oh, that would suit that person, Do you know? And then other things I go, oh yeah, no, that'll, that'll suit me. But I remember when I was on, I, I did a show in New York and um, with uh it was a Shakespeare show right and it was all female and I was working with Phyllis Lloyd at the time we were overdoing uh, another run of one of the Shakespeare's probably the first one Julius Caesar and you know when you write a bucket list in your life well I'm a massive fan of writing lists right and then if I even tick two things on them I'm delighted with myself I'm still working on a very big one which is to speak French fluently but also act in French so nurturing that one and um, other things on my bucket list have been meet Meryl Streep or um, the, this one was sing live in New York 
right? And that's all it was. It didn't have to be big. It didn't have to be big. So anyway, we were working in um, in Brooklyn uh, down in Dumbo and we'd always go to this bar around the corner from St. Anne's Warehouse and all and they were lovely. The staff and they were lovely. There was a pool table. You get nibbles real late, blah, blah, blah. And then there was this other bar that was a bit less fancy and a bit mental just across the road from it. And you go in there and sometimes there'd be randomly just live music. So I went into them one of the days I was going into the theatre and I was like, Come here, what's the crack? Like, how do you sing live here? Because we had a fantastic drummer called Helen and uh, this English girl, she was fantastic. A big red curly hair. We had Irene Ketkidi, who um, is this insanely good Greek guitarist. Uh, you'd see her online. She just works with all the greats, does massive, like, concerts like that kind of like with the fingers going up and down the guitar like a mental case um who else did we have we had another bass guitarist danielle who's actually a fantastic bbc writer as well but um so we had all these great talents in the cast blah blah, blah. so then i was chatting to irene one night we were just having a beer in her um rented apartment in new york and i was saying to her like oh i have a couple of songs and blah 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 she was like bring them to me, you know, like all this kind of thing. So actually what happened was we said to the bar, here, can we just come in and sing live some night? Well, it just was amazing. Everybody got a party piece. Everybody pulled something together. I had three songs that I did and she made them sound amazing with her guitar and Helen was there with her drums and it was like, oh my God, it was like we formed a rock band in like five days and we were in this bar and uh, my mum and dad, I remember, arrived to see me only that day. And so they arrived to meet me in this bar and they, they didn't hadn't even had settled out to me. And I was singing live in a bar and I just I was so happy. I was singing away and, um, and we had great crack that night. And I remember then just going, oh, yeah, like I'd love to do, do that again. And I've kind of dropped the ball with that. And, and, and so that's my ambition now is to kind of get back to all the musicy stuff and Get writing again. Uh, okay, another question. Give me another number. Um, eighteen. Um, what book are you reading right now? Oh, I'm so glad I got this one because I actually started reading properly recently. <laughs> I struggle with reading, but um, because you always get scripts to read as actors, but books, you know, it's hard to just get the. But I had a few flights to do back and forth to Prague there, so I had I had time. I read a book uh, about weirdly um a woman discovering the gospel of mary magdalene her gospel was hidden and buried away and basically ignored hers and the gospel of thomas and philip who were very much pro her and really listened to her and that was all buried um, and they hid them away in egypt thank god somebody did they didn't burn them um, so anyway, I found this book that was just like only published there in 2018 or 2019. It's a very new book. It's this book that's just basically she goes through the gospel for you, explains it, her discovery of it, then in, insights to it, then how Philip and Thomas at the time wrote stuff about it. So it's literally teaching you all the kind of the feminine side of, I suppose it is a book about Christianity. It's the feminine side of the story of Jesus Christ that has never really been heard. I found it so, so cool to read. It's called Mary Magdalene Revealed by Megan Waterson. I think you can get it on Amazon and things like that, unfortunately. I don't know if they have it in the Irish bookstores. 
Uh, it's fantastic. But I've moved on now to um, Mindy Carling's book. She's just really, really funny. And um, and I think the book is called something like uh, Why Not Me? <laughs> it's just like, it's brilliant. It's so fun. So I've moved on to lowbrow stuff now. Um, I see one of your ifters behind you. Um, oh, yeah. The casually. Casually herself. on camera here. Yeah, just casually placed there in shot. Uh, uh, herself I mean it was did that take you a long time to write from the moment I got the idea to the shoot was five years um, but I it actually did move fast because the first two years was just me actually becoming a screenwriter and writing by myself if you know what I mean and then um, eventually I got this, the 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 Screen Ireland funding to just to just be a writer for the summer. Uh, at one point, I got the screenwriting thing, and then Sharon Horgan got involved, and she brought in Element uh, Pictures. And then from twenty seventeen, the beginning of twenty seventeen onwards, was kind of more of a in development with them and loads of drafts. And then only in twenty, I want to say ten months, about ten months before filming, they asked me to let another more experienced screenwriter come on board because the financiers kind of couldn't quite believe that the scriptwriter was going to star in it. And they were worried about just, I don't know, loads of things. And they just wanted somebody experienced to help me give it all, give it its all. So that's how that happened. And there's a, you had a friend that, that inspired this story, just in case people haven't seen this, uh, it's oh, yeah. a story so of herself a... herself is about, um, yeah, it's about this woman in Dublin, Sandra. She's got two kids and she's just left an abusive partner and she decides to build a house for herself. Now, I don't know somebody who's done that at all, but what I did at the time, what, what sparked it was a really close friend of mine who actually had three kids at the time, um... She had to do that thing where, you know, when you get short notice for eviction, as people are experiencing at the minute, um, and she had to officially declare herself homeless on a form so that then she, if she ended up not finding anywhere, that she could actually go into temporary accommodation. And I, I, she was just really in bits on the phone at the time. It was a really, really horrible, scary time, but also not fair on her because she had done a lot of work on herself and her kids and worked really hard and was very independent and did not want to be a person declaring herself homeless when when that shouldn't have been the case. And then, so I was just very angry about the whole thing. And what happened in that moment was me just fantasizing on her behalf and somebody with her spirit and her determination should, should be allowed to build their own bleeding gaff because it's actually just like, I don't know, it was this weird moment basically where I was like, why is it all wrapped up in this money and mortgage and a red tape thing? Like, I, why can't it just be the land, the wood, the bricks, the water, the, like, the whatever it is. And just like, let's get back to basics for a second and realise that we can do this. Like, and it doesn't have to be so difficult. There was something in me that was sort of as if I was seeing what we were like maybe before an industrial revolution. And I was just like, why is it so hard now? So then I got this flash of a story kind of come to me just as my head hit the pillow that night. I was in New York at the time um, auditioning and I just had a flash of the story before my eyes and I knew that I knew that for the film she should be leaving a very desperate situation in order to even have this 
spark to dare to do it. And that's where like the domestic violence thing came in because I was just working with a lot of female prisoners at the time. You wouldn't believe how much domestic violence is actually a cause for the amount of women in prison, um, weirdly, and um, men in prison maybe as well. It is a an actual cancer in society that is just not recognised, so that's causing way more problems than we realise uh, for the children of those homes as well. So, yeah, um, I, I decided to vote that as the thing she was running from and then running towards maybe building a new house for herself. Uh, and that's what the story is about. But yeah, that's what it was sparked from. It was my friend's situation. She didn't do that, but it was just her, the, you know, the anger kind of sparked in me against the injustice of it all, which still exists, obviously. You got the standing ovation at the Sundance Film Festival. You have the IFTA for screenwriting behind you there. Like incredible reviews. It must have felt incredible. Your first film. Incredible. Yeah. The moment in Sundance was like, it was really magical because my mum and dad were there. I remember Sharon was beside me as well or just behind me and then Phil it was to the left. I just remember feeling like, Everyone in that room, when I walked on the stage and everybody stood up, it kind of struck me in that moment. They knew that I think they understood on some level the journey I'd been on to get there. I just think they understood it in that moment. And I felt very lucky to even have that that moment because then obviously COVID hit and everything else was on Zoom and everything was delayed and everything was, a, you know, that kind of thing. But I got to have this moment where I felt like they knew that I, it was like they knew the months of my own uh, couch surfing while I wrote the film, had no money um, and had no work. And I just met people. I met people on the front lines of this issue and I met architects and I met child psychologists and I met women's aid and I met, I met the real heroes all along the way as well. So it was like they knew what I'd done or something. And then I said to them, like when I was thanking them, I was like, like, thank you so much. And somebody asked me a great question that night in Sundance. They were like, what's been your favorite thing about this whole journey? And I was like, it was genuinely the conversations I had with people in Dublin and the nearby counties in Ireland about all of these things. And they work with people like this every single day. And uh, I'd say that's what they were the jewels of the journey that I probably will always, always value. And I had, cause I asked every single one of them, I, I said, can I use some of this information for the story? Can I do this? Can I do that? And they all said yes, cause they want certain things to get across, you know? And um, so I just feel very grateful for that more than anything. But you give herself a happy ending. Was that always the plan? Well, you, you see it as a happy ending. A lot of other people thought it was very harsh ending. And that's, to be honest, that itself is what, what I find interesting. So what I wanted was, I think on, on the journey itself that I went on with it, I realized that on some um, deep, deep level for me and for maybe the generation I'm born into and everything that we feel about having to feel like we have to maybe turn things around in a certain way on the planet. I do want to feel the possibility of redemption. That's all. People must feel they can be redeemed. That's my feeling. And I don't think it has to be 
Disney. But um, I think we must be able to become more and more non-judgmental of each other. So in my film, what I was trying to get across was like, okay, Sandra goes and builds a house, um, but that seems like a plaster over a bullet wound. What's the real thing underneath? So that's what I was trying to get at. And in the film is that like the, the real rebuilding was in herself, like not to be exacerbating the pun there of the title of the film, but um, yeah, so I didn't, I wanted it to have some hope and redemption because I watched a lot of Ken Loach films over the years. I've watched a lot of stuff that's socially conscious, like my film. Show us real life solutions, like give us, like give us a question. This generation do not need more fear-based news and fear-based stories and just being told that we're absolutely screwed. Like they don't need that anymore. Like, you know, if we want to keep going forward, we have to show some real solutions, not just like fairy tale Disney stuff and not just, oh, we're all doomed because we have a responsibility and we have a conscious ability to actually change things. Go back to Ken then. Uh, and just, I was just thinking about yeah. you in prison. How do they respond to you in prison? Because presumably they watch Ken in prison, do they? There was, of course, a reaction to me as Amanda from Kin. But they were more interested in asking me how I got into acting and where I come from and that kind of thing. So I was very open with them about that, which was great. Um, but again, like I find it interesting when people are slagging off Kin as well or about in terms of like, oh, they're glamorized violence. And I'm like, here, listen, the amount of people in Dublin that have said to me, you're not even showing it real. Like it, it, should, it should be way worse. Like a lot of people are saying things to me about like, the drugs or the violence in and they're like, it's actually fucking worse in real life, to be honest. Um, and uh, so when you get new, you, you know, when you get the inside scoop that way, you're kind of like, like, Jesus, like, are, do you ever strike it right? At the end of the day, we're all human beings trying to tell stories to each other. And I think Kin like, is exploring gangland stuff and the thing of, certainly the thing of young lads with violence. I think they're. I I think this year I was so happy when Peter was telling me how he's going to do this whole big long sequence. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, but just uh, there's a whole long sequence where uh, Viking has to kill somebody, but he finds it really hard to do it, and the two and and him and the victim have a standoff, and it's really emotional, and it's really bloody hard, and it's two men that are emotionally attached, like it's not easy, like. And I was so glad that Peter put a lot of time into that episode to let those young lads struggle inwardly with their own guilt, their own actuality of having to kill. That's what I like about Kin. It's not as simple as bang, bang, bang. Let's make it look good with the sequences. Do you know what I mean? No, that's oh, for sure. And you could see, I mean, Peter McKenna is obviously an absolutely amazing writer. What he's given you to play with there with Amanda like what a complex character how like where, what is she what do you think she's like because you have people rooting for you in it as this this you know woman who came from the outside and yet has somehow managed to sort of take control yes you're a horrible person Amanda <laughs> <laughs> is she though I don't know yeah no uh, do you know what it is uh if you think about it, Amanda is like, uh, she's like your man in Breaking Bad. 
like she kind of she something happens to her that makes her break bad right but even when she breaks bad she still questions it and then once she starts getting into the it's either you or them territory <laughs> like something different happens and I will tell you what has helped me play Amanda and understand this world is actually what's helped me has been the fact that I have played a soldier before and I've played Henry the fourth on stage. So when you've played a person that leads soldiers into battle and read up on that side of things, um, it's very hard to explain, but it's a different level of consciousness to live at. It's not the same as normal people. So you can't, you can't look at it with a normal, I go down the road and I just buy milk and bread in the morning and then I go for a coffee and meet my friends. And then I, you're talking about people that are looking over their shoulder every time they walk out of the house and get into a car. Um, and also that they have, like for Amanda anyway, she's accidentally become the person that runs all, how it all runs, right? Doesn't mean she doesn't find it hard to see a heroin addict in the street. It doesn't mean that she doesn't go asleep at night going, what the fuck am I doing? Like, but when you're in, you're in and you can't get out and you're either going to die or you're going to live in that world. Now, who's to say what could happen in the future or whether she could somehow get out of it by not dying? I don't know. I don't know about that for any of them. And as we've seen with Aiden, he struggled with that, his character throughout the series. That's what I like about this, you see. He's questioning it all the time from in this series because he's after facing death and he's had this whole kind of new level of enlightenment. Um, I just find it, I find that basically after playing a soldier and then going playing Amanda and having the grief that she's experienced, there's just this other level of consciousness you're at where there's honour and there's honour amongst thieves and there's kind of, yeah, a do or die thing. Um, it's very hard to explain with words, but it just, you know it when you're in it and you feel it. Um, and that it's almost like the world they are in is so messed up anyway it's almost like well okay well what can I do within that it's not like they don't choose this to do this if they could you know start again in their lives I, I don't know if they would if they weren't born into it and also just like from the bits of research I've done over the years as well it's like just realizing that most people that get involved in this come from a certain kind of background and they haven't got certain opportunities um, and it's not as simple as everyone thinks like they don't get into it for the crack like also I will say as a woman I think most women in Dublin that come up to me and they're like I've had women in their 60s in the city centre come up to me and be like you're a fantastic actress and you're doing something blah 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 I've been going around going what is it about her she's like She's an unapologetic woman showing her shadow side. She's not apologizing for it. Everybody has light and dark. Everybody has the shadow and the light within their lives. Like we all spend most of our feckin' lives going through, through therapy or figuring out stuff, realizing that you, ha you have to be okay with the, the sad side of your life, your anger. You have to work through it, blah, blah, blah. The whole like shadow work thing. And it's like, Amanda's just somebody that actually is doing it in front of us all. Like, she's not trying to, like, obviously she she keeps certain cards close to her chest, like, obviously in order to 
get ahead of people. But what I love about her is that she's just, she's the dark side, but she's not apologising for it. Are you rolling in it now? That you're oh, a sure, I'm a millionaire now. I'm not a millionaire at all. Uh, I, I, uh, no, I've been doing a bit more, obviously, consistent acting work now. So I'm definitely a bit more uh, comfortable. But I would say that I know the worth of that comfort. Like, um, I think literally I was only saying to somebody, I think I've only gotten used to it now because um, in the last couple of years, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. But I'd say only now I'm starting to actually feel secure all around. Um, as a as a an adult, if you know what I mean, um, because I've definitely had a journey with like renting and uh, I'm oh, sorry, I'm still renting, but I just mean I had a bit of a nomadic time leading up to herself, out not not out of choice, you know, sometimes, um, and that was hard, but I felt like that was happening for a reason, and I'm glad I was personally experiencing the whole tenuous living circumstance thing um, because it made me really passionate about the story. You wouldn't describe yourself as homeless, but... I would, no, I would, uh, yeah, well, I would describe myself as, um, you know, there was there was a term going around, I don't know, it was like invisible homeless, as in like, I actually didn't have my own home for a long time, but... I had um I had a room to go to in my sister's house for a while and I had a room then in my parents when the financing fell through on herself just before we were supposed to shoot herself in 2018 it didn't happen for various reasons because of time and of the actors availability so they wouldn't finance it for the bigger names um so there was this moment where I had turned down obviously a theater job because I thought we were shooting and I just had no money so I had to move home for a few months at the time um, and things like that then. But before, there was a couple of years that were leading up to that. Of, yeah, I, I used to just sublet a room when I had to get do a job in London. I would get a short-term thing, live out of a suitcase and then live out of several suitcases in my sister's. Then when I was back in Ireland and I just kept writing the film. Writing the film was, was in a way, like, for me... Um, the film was my home, my psychological home. It kept me going as well sometimes because it was like that was my only center point in my life. I couldn't depend on work. The acting work was really sparse for me at the time and I didn't have a stable home situation. And weirdly writing about this woman that was going to build a home for herself was like my, that was my way of like being for a while. and only now in retrospect I can say oh god like I actually struggled for a while once the film was over because that was the centre point for me for everything and then it wasn't and I was like oh what do I do now <laughs> you know um, so it was a really interesting way to write the film but I'm glad it happened like that I think that journey added to it you know it added a certain passion to it and that was Claire Dunn. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feet when they're published and get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear featured. On Twitter, we're at RTE Upfront or send us a WhatsApp message to 087 677 1000. And don't forget to join us on RTE One and on the RTE Player at 10.35 on Monday night for my TV show. Talk to you then.